This week on the Off the Crossbar podcast, we're seven days away from the 2020 NLL entry draft, so the guru, Stephen Stamp, will stop by. And on the heels of the Iroquois Nationals accepting a bid to Birmingham, Terry Foy of Inside Lacrosse gives us the details. All that more on OTCB. Good lacrosse fans, we are seven days away, seven glorious days to the first ever virtual National Lacrosse League entry draft. It's going to be a trip, man. I am so looking forward to it. I hope you're all going to be there joining us. BR Live, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, all that jazz and more. We'll have you covered from first to final pick. My name is Teddy Jenner. Thank you for joining me here on the show each and every Thursday. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me, teddy.jenner at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram, OTCB Podcast, or on Twitter, at Off the Crossbar. Also, don't forget to check out lacrosseflash.com where we are continually breaking down, I believe, the top 30 prospects in the draft. Either way, you can find information on a ton of kids uh, over on Lacrosse Flash website and on their Twitter and Instagram accounts. Um, So be sure to check out that so you know who is in this draft and who are some of the names that will be called early on Next Thursday. Earlier today, the National Lacrosse League added names to their renunciation list. Bobby Kidd III, Mitchell Zulian, Jackson Boyd, Johnny Rogers III, Phil Mazuka, Scott Delzato, Tanner Buck, Troy Lopper, Ethan Riggs, and Kevin Hill. Now, which of those names will get called early? Again, tune in Thursday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Facebook, BR Live, in front of the paywall, Twitter, YouTube, all that good stuff. Devin Caney, Stephen Stamp, Tabitha Turner, myself, and a slew of guests from around the National Lacrosse League will be stopping by, and there'll be a few surprises in there as well, so don't stray too far from your computer next Thursday. Speaking of Thursdays, how awesome is it that the NFL football season is kicking off? Tonight, did you get your fantasies done? How do you feel? Are you confident about your team? I took Patrick Mahomes fourth overall. I forgot that I had Kyler Murray as a keeper. So I have Mahomes and Kyler Murray on my team. Murray will probably be trade bait later on, but I'm okay with that position. Got a couple decent running backs, a bunch of wide receivers. I'll probably finish like 10th in my league, but whatever. I'll have a good time. I'll have a good time. I know there's a lot of the NLL boys that that get in on the fantasy, and I just love to see the chirpings back and forth. Just makes it fun. Usually around this time, we are talking about the Man Cup because this is the Thursday before the first Friday after Labor Day, which signifies the start of every Man Cup. Well, at least for the last like 30 years but we don't have it and I'm sad because it would have been the Shamrocks and somebody from back east I would have loved to have seen this man cup take place and I know a lot of NLL GMs were wishing there was a founders, a Minto, a Prezi a man so they could do some scouting because we're getting to the nitty gritty And it's not just hard for GMs and head coaches and scouts to make their decisions on guys without summer lacrosse. It's also tough for guys like our first guest on this week's show, Stephen Stamp. He makes it his duty to know as much about every single kid in this draft as he possibly can. And it is not easy. Because if you look at some of the draft eligible lists, There's like a couple hundred kids on there because it includes junior A, junior B, junior C, senior A, B, and C, right? Like 
There are every person that is eligible gets put on that master list. And there are a ton of names. Now, I'm sure, like myself and many, he's kind of cut that list in half and found himself a good zone of guys that are within the top 200 or maybe 150 of the draft. Because in total, there will be 93 names selected. So you at least got to know as much as you can about 93 kids. Now, which kids those are is a whole different ball of wax, even more so where their names will be called. I think we all can agree Jeff Teat goes number one. We can probably decide between a couple guys at number two. And then it slowly gets more and more complicated after that. We're going to ask Stamper many of those questions. He knows it all. He tells it like it is. And he will be the most listened to analyst on our draft next Thursday. Stamper, myself, one-on-one talking all things NLL draft right here on the Off the Crossbar podcast. Joined now by the guru, the schwam, the guy who knows everything about everyone, Stephen Stamp. He is our draft analyst. And we're going to talk about September 17th, 2020, and what could happen? Stamper, cottage life, how is it? Uh, it is great. We, uh, we're living half an hour north of Peterborough, and uh, we love it. It's, uh, other than getting here and being realized I didn't have a key to get back into the house today when I came to pick up my stick because I had forgotten to take it into play, so it's uh, put off a chain of events that delayed us chatting for a little bit, but uh, no, cottage life is great. It's a great place to be, and we love it here, and uh, I don't like going into the city that much anymore. Were you at the Senior <laughs> Masters Men's Combine, or what are you, what are you playing? <laughs> it's called the Borough Boys. It's a, uh, it's a league for um, mostly Masters, but there are some younger guys, which is kind of annoying because they're really fast and can run all the time. And uh, we actually have a uh, shining new prospect this year. Erica Evans is playing in the league. And, oh, nice. uh, yeah, she's, uh, I, I went up here last week and I was like, Hey, I don't, you know, I hope you realize we don't really like to have your kind here. And she like, looked at me and I'm like, I mean, I said, I mean, people who are, who are young, skilled, and fast. Well, I thought you were meaning, <laughs> like, meaning an Evans. Oh, no, no. We, oh, we all the Evans. Evans I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a non-contact league, so, yeah. No, no, Eric is great. fighting right Oh, my God. Yeah, but, and, uh, but I, I can't wait. We uh, were supposed to play Erica's team. Or sorry, it was a couple weeks ago I talked to her. Because last week we were supposed to play, and we had a lightning storm, so we couldn't play, and we were going to play them. So I'm looking forward to seeing her play. The last uh, time I got to see her play in person, I think, was actually um, when she was on the Canadian U19 team, and Scott uh, Teeter was coaching them, mm-hmm. and he brought them to Brooklyn, uh, to, well, to Whippy, to play at the Iroquois Park uh, in the intermission of a Brooklyn at the time, Redmond game that I was actually calling an MSL game. And he brought that team and they split up into two, two groups and played a scrimmage down on the, uh, on the rink at, at the intermission, which was a lot of fun before they went off to world championships. And the funny thing, the, the rosters for the U19s, they're pretty short rosters. They don't have a lot. You only allowed a certain number. So they only had one goalie. So they're playing with one goalie and the other end, they're just, you know, kind of doing whatever, like you do when you're kids and you don't have two goalies, you either play post or you, you know, whatever. And uh, so Scott Evans is watching because Eric is playing and he's, it was Peter in Brooklyn. So he's like, they don't have a goalie. He comes out still in this year at intermission. He comes out and plays net for one of the teams. And he made some amazing saves. Plus every time he would get the ball, he, all he would do is look floor length, bomb to Erica. <laughs> They're cousins. So <laughs> yeah, he's, like, he's setting her up. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Is she Turner's brother? Um, she is because like, uh, Turner Evans is a cousin of the Sean Evans of Sean and, and Scott and, and Steve. Is, yeah, her, is Erica a different family cousin? Uh, I'm trying to think if she's Turner's little sister or if she is a different one because there are six or seven, six of the six brothers yeah. at the generation above Scott, Sean, and Steve and Turner, right? Yeah. Um, and they all played at high levels, a couple of them played in the NHL and um. A lot of a lot of you know high level lacrosse guys, so it, it's hard to keep track. Yeah, it <laughs> all of them. Um, it's yeah. hard to keep track of Peterborough people in general because there are so many. Um, yeah. But you mentioned Iroquois Park and yes, um, the lore and the mystique and the legends that have come out of that place. 
who's the best Whitby player ever? Do you think this is just a super oh random question? But who's the wow. best guy to come out of come out of that park? Is it Sean Williams? Uh, it, it might be. I mean, I God, he can miss somebody. Um, yeah, this is just like I said, just a random question. That I thought. Yeah, I mean, I think Sean Williams has got to be up there, right? One of the all-time scorers, and uh, you know, an all-time Kufla grad uh, yeah. with Brock, and uh, obviously everything he's done in, in the NLL and summer lacrosse. I think Williams is up there. I mean, oh boy, there. I mean, Derek Keenan was an awfully good player. Um, there's a lot of guys. Uh, Graham Hossick, I think, is putting his name up on that list right yeah, now. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Uh, um, yeah. Um, a guy who's played many times there as an opponent is Jeff Keat. He is the hands-on, guaranteed, signed, sealed, and delivered number one pick. Uh, you told Devin Caney there is 0.0 chance anyone yeah. that has that number one pick doesn't take Jeff Keat. But yeah. – in in the last few years, he's allowed his game to really shine, whether it be at Cornell or whether it be with Brampton Junior Senior. What makes him so special beyond the optics of just being able to put up great points at all levels? Yeah, I mean, the points obviously is what draws you to him. You see that, but it's how he goes about it. And his lacrosse IQ, I actually interviewed him a while ago for a story about him and his dad. Um, and he was saying, you know, he went to see his dad and lots of National Cross League players and, and summer players bring their kids to the rink. Um, but he was there watching his dad and watching, you know, John Tavares and Josh Sanderson and all the great like Brampton and Buffalo guys, which is where he mostly was going, where Dan was when Jeff was of the age to come to games. And one thing that Dan told me was a lot of guys would bring their kids and they'd come and they'd watch a bit of the game and then they would run around and want to go get popcorn or go and do this. He said, Jeff sat and watched the game and learned the game. And he has been a student of the game since he was five years old, maybe four. And uh, his lacrosse IQ is off the charts. And he's, he's got the subtlety of finding spots, finding teammates, just finding ways to make things happen. He's not the biggest guy, but he never... He, uh, he's sort of like Wayne Gretzky in that he doesn't take a lot of big hits, even though he's not the biggest guy. Yeah. He's not the most athletic guy. He's he's quick. He can move. He he can do what he needs to do. But he's not, you know, he's not Josh Byrne that you just yeah. can't catch, right? Yeah. But he's got so such a blend of intelligence and touch and skill and just innate knowledge. Like of all the kids that hung around the rinks, he just seemed to soak up more than just about all of them. Does 5'11", 180 scare you, or is that not going to be an issue for him in the NRL? Uh, it's, it kind of does because the game's gotten so big. There's so many big defenders, and, mm -hmm. and it is different. But I'll tell you, you watch him in MSL where, you know, it's it's a rougher game. I mean, the summer, yeah. the WLA and MSL, they can get away with more, right? And it, it wasn't an issue for him at all. I mean, he led the league in scoring as a rookie, and I, I like to say how, you know, I, I – Watched his first game in MSL, which was in Brampton. Peterborough was playing up there to open the season. I watched the stream, and he wasn't very good. He was—he uh, looked like a, a rookie in a in a league playing against men. And then his second game was four days later, a rematch down in Peterborough. I'm calling the game, and in the pre pre game, I said, "Hey, he he wasn't great last week. It takes a while, even for really great players, to make the adjustment." Mm -hmm. Fourteen minutes into the first period, he had four goals. <laughs> he, he never looked back. He went from there to lead, lead the league in scoring. And he, I mean, he just, that's how he makes adjustments. He just, he is so smart and so, just so natural at it that he, he makes the adjustments. So I think, I don't think it'll be an issue. And yeah. he may not be 180 pounds in a year and yeah, a half yeah, or yeah. a year and a bit, right, when he comes. Yeah. I think he'll probably put on a bit of weight. But um, I, I don't think it's really a big issue. I mean, you look at guys that size and it's concern, you know, I mean, the same questions are going to come up with Marshall Powell, who's six foot, 185, you know, similar size and, and thin. But, uh, you know, if you can make a miss, it's yeah. not so bad. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's number one in the book. Like, yeah. lock it up, sign it now, send in the sheet right away. But after that, it becomes a crapshoot because mm -hmm. – I think there's probably a, a three-man choice, maybe even a four-guy choice of what Rochester is going to do. And then what Rochester does is going to cause the domino effect down the list. Now, I have mm -hmm. guys like Bowering, Henrik, Smith. I probably don't put Trey LeClaire in there um, for, no. for Rochester at number two. But what do you think they do? You've kind of been heavy on Ryan Smith. 
Yeah, I think Smith is probably the guy they're leaning towards. I, I think if it comes down to Smith or Leclerc, you're the Eastern team, you take Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because there's, um, you could argue, depending on what you've seen, what you like, what you, how you assess it, you could say either Smith or Leclerc is the better player. Um, I've seen a lot of Ryan Smith, so I'm, I'm pretty big on him. I think that's one of the things that happens, right? The more you get to see people in person, it, it has an influence. But I think if, if it was a Western team at two, if it was Vancouver or San Diego at two, and they wanted a righty, they probably, there's a good chance it goes Leclerc. I think it's a toss-up. But I just don't think you fly a guy in if you don't have to. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think Smith, but I think, I mean, Bowering and Henrik, quite different players, but both very, very good players as well. Um, again, if it's Rochester and they're picking between Bowering and Henrik, unless there's something in Reed Bowering that they think really separates him from Jeff Henrik, I think you probably mm-hmm. take the guy who's closer. Um, and now in that case, I think there's more of a difference. And I think maybe there is something in Reed Bowering that separates him in, in some people's eyes. From Jeff Henrik, so maybe that would be the case. I also, I don't know if you're hearing what I'm hearing, Teddy. You probably are. I'm hearing there's a team that's trying pretty hard to move up to two. I've heard that as well. Yeah. Now, if and you're Rochester, if, do you do that? Depending um, on what now, is coming back are obviously. It really depends on who you're getting, what picks you're getting. Do you get? Do you think it, if I'm Rochester and I, I say I want Ryan Smith, and but. You know, you're not going to let that out, and you're still considering everyone. But if you want Smith and you think you can make that trade, get the pick from the team that's trying to move up, and still get Ryan Smith with that pick, and then add assets, absolutely do the trade. I yeah. don't know. I don't think Ryan Smith lasts very long. And I, I, it's hard to envision but him going past. Here, here's the thing. Four-ish. So here's yeah. the thing. So if Rochester does trade down, and I, like I said, I've heard that too that there's yeah. a team really trying to get that number two because they covet one of those top five guys. Yes. The next three picks are Western clubs. So yes. that probably kind of leaves Ryan Smith, maybe like you said, if it's a Western yeah. team picking two, that kind of drops Ryan Smith down. So there is a possibility that yeah. if Rochester does drop to number two, that Smith is there four yeah. or five picks later. Yeah, it, it is possible, right? Because you've got that run of – um, um, Vancouver, Vancouver, San Diego, Diego Calgary. Diego Calgary comes in at five. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it makes sense, right? Like, and you can see Bowering. And the thing with Henrik is, yes, he's a, an Eastern guy, but he also he played in the West last year for yeah. Dan Richardson at th- who's got the three pick with Vancouver, and there's a pretty long, a strong connection there, right? So there's a real possibility Smith is available later, but. If you really, really like him and you really want him, I think you use the pick. If you think you can still get him later and get assets, 100% you do it. If you can add like a, a solid young defender, which Rochester really needs, mm-hmm. I'd but uh, Georgia has four picks in the first round. Um, yeah. They took the Toronto pick. Um, Buffalo was kind of hoping to have nine and ten, but uh, they're going to have to stick with nine now. But yeah. Does Georgia use all four? Or do they do they keep that extra pick to use as trade bait? You think? I think it's it. I think they're looking at trades. I would imagine they're looking to to maybe make a move. But if they don't find something that they like, if they don't get what they think is fair re, uh, return on it, I think they could use them all. Because you think like they've lost some guys. Like I know they they replaced Jason Noble with Dan Coates. If you want to look at it that way, as they made those yeah. moves the same day, it's hard not to see that. But you know, with Leo Suris going and a great trade, you get what could be you know near the top of the draft pick yeah, next year yeah. for Listeris. I think it's a great trade for him, but it, it takes out a defender, and Alex Krepensek, who's been one of their steadiest defenders, is gone. Mm-hmm. I think they need some guys right away. Zed Williams is gone. We all, I think Rollis and Brendan Bomberry moves up to the front door. Yeah, um, so likely you know, move. Yeah, so I think they need some people right away, and I think there are some players that they would like to get. And the thing is, with four picks this year, you could get take one or two guys who can play right away, who can step yeah. in. I think Robert Hudson's an obvious consideration for them being available this year. Um, and then you look at guys like, you know, Ron John, who's going back to school, would be a great fit. Um, you know, you, you look for lefties. Um, do you think about, you know, um, I recently found out that uh, Brad McCulley is, is available mm-hmm. this year. I, I thought mm-hmm. he was going back to school, but I don't know if he's that high. I think we might have a bit, bit of a different view on that one, but um, I think Ty Thompson, is a real consideration. Yep. He's available this year, you know, and, and then 
Tanner Cook, who's going back to school, right? So he's a guy, you get that mix, you can get maybe a couple guys who can play this year and a couple guys to fill in, you know, next year. And and they've also got a bunch of picks in the next couple of years too, right? (laughs) So, Um, yeah, so it's interesting. And and the, the interesting point of this draft is the whole aspect of players being able to go back. And yeah. going to that fifth year. So teams could technically have, you know, four or five or three, four or five rookies come 21, 22 season. So mm-hmm. how many teams, like I think Halifax and Toronto are two of the big ones, Saskatchewan even, are, are teams that are okay with their roster right now. And as they go through this draft, they're looking not for this year, but for 21, 22. How does that play into how teams are going to draft? Yeah, it, it's a big factor, and, and I don't know how you find it, but I'm, when I'm looking at my prospects, I'm working on my mock draft a little bit um, sometime next week, and, you know, the uh, it, it's like you have, you have to kind of keep them in the back of your mind. Like, okay, is this guy this year or is he next year? Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got to do the same thing. Like, And you just know there's a lot of information, and they're going back and forth on players, and, and it's, it, it's interesting to see how that will factor in. To me, there's kind of a, a sweet spot or a, a – a turning point where you get to the point where you're looking at players and if one player substantially you think is substantially better, more promising than another, I think you take the guy, unless you desperately need somebody this year, you take the better player. But at what point, like how close do they have to be for it to bump, bump them ahead? I mentioned Robert Hudson as a guy who's available this year. And I think he's one of the top defenders, you know, after yeah. the, the bowering Henry thing, he's, he's very good. Is he better as a long-term prospect than, Ron John or, you know, Jordan Suris, Connor McClellan, some of the other, you know, top guys, right? Um, Patrick Shumay, if you're not worried about, I mean, there have been some injury issues, right? But I mean, Shumay is awfully good. Um, but I think he's going is, super underrated, by the way, and under the radar. Yeah. Well, I think, I think because people are worried, like how, you know, how healthy will he be? But boy, somebody, if he, if he can stay healthy as a pro, somebody I think might get a super great steal getting him late. In the first round, yeah. But, uh, you know, if you're looking at, you know, comparing some of those guys, a Hudson versus a, a John or a, a Shumay, and you're like, oh, who's better? I think Hudson's very, very good. He's not a high-ranked prospect just because he's available, but that might tip the scales. And, you, you know, you say, hey, we can get him for an extra year, you know. Um, I think you can look at that, and it's like, think of when New England traded um, a pick, a future pick, which comes in this year or next year, to Georgia for the the pick that they used a few years ago to take Colton Watkins. Watkins, yeah, right. And they've had him, and he's been very good, and just got better. And they have no regrets about that. Even though it, yeah. it takes away a first round pick three years down the road, they've gotten such value from him for three years. But for one year, how much more value do you get than having it? So it's it's a balancing act, and and. I think it's going to be different for everyone. Certainly teams like, you got to think New York, Rochester, they want guys who can play. Right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But um, at the same time, you're building for the long term. And, and Yeah. I don't know. Is Hudson your number one guy not going back to school? Uh, okay. I, I'm i still waffling. I'm still <laughs> working on it a bit. It's Hudson or um, I really like Marshall Palace. Yeah, I know you're really high on him. He's he's so talented. And I, th- I think not many people, honestly, that are looking at this have had as much chance to see him in person as I have. Because, you know, I've seen him play juniors, seen him play world juniors. And I saw him at the President's Cup, which I called last year. Right. And I got to see him play a bunch against men. And it's tricky. I mean, he is on the smaller side. He's incredibly talented. I mean, he's he's got all the moves that his big, big brother Johnny has and then some. And uh, he is, he's super skilled. And the, the big question is he hasn't played junior A. He played junior B. He played in Wallaceburg. Some people are like, oh, why wouldn't he play junior A? And I get that. I mean, you always want guys who want to play at the highest level they can. But yeah. his, um, his, his brother Johnny was coaching in Wallaceburg, and their brother Sid was playing in Wallaceburg. So Marshall really wanted to go and play in that situation yeah. for a year. So he did that. And then he went to the Rebels, uh, the Six Nations Junior B team. Then this year he was supposed to play Junior A with the with the Arrows. This right. year and next year, right? So he didn't get that chance, which is which is tough. Which is I was maybe mildly surprised he came out this year because he hadn't had that chance. But uh, so that's tough for me. I'm, I'm still like, how high do you take Marshall? Some people are higher on him than yeah. others. He could turn out to be, you know, 
an absolute gem. Do you have him but, higher than Ethan Walker? I'm, I'm still working. On it. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. Keep throwing names, and that's and that's the beauty of this draft right now because yeah. of the yeah. aspect of guys going back to school, and yeah. it becomes what do you need, what does that player yeah. bring, and if you're going to yeah. get him right. Well, I, I am so looking forward to this draft because of all yeah. the unknowns, and everybody's mock draft after one is going to be different. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I'll tell you, the, you look at the lefties we're talking about, Palace, and you bring up Ethan Walker, and you mentioned Tanner Cook. How do you rank those three guys? They're such different players. Then you throw in Ty Thompson, you throw in Brad McCulley. Like, there, there's yeah. five quality <clears throat> left-handers that we yeah. all kind of agree are going to have excellent NLL careers, and you just yeah. have no idea where they could go. And throw in Sam Firth and Larson yeah. Sundown. Yeah. And then you've got guys like Tanner Buck, who's a smaller kid, but he's done very well in the Arena League. Again, a smaller guy, tons of talent. Um, yeah. And Mac O'Keefe. Yeah. What do you do with Mac O'Keefe? To me, he's like the seventh lefty or whatever because because he hasn't played a lot of box. We haven't seen him in, in exactly. you know Canadian box since he was 17 in Orangeville. But, I mean, that's a skilled kid. One of the all-time leading NCAA scorers. He is the leading all-time scorer, right? In goals for the NCAA. That was so. going to be that was perfect lead into my next question. Who's the yeah. first American off the board? Is it him, or is it a guy like Charlie? Uh, um, I I think Kitchen goes a bit lower. I think okay. I, I think he's a bit lower down. Um, mm-hmm. I think probably O'Keefe is a, is a pretty good bet. Um, I think I'm curious about Grant Ament because I think somebody takes a shot at him. Um, now the other, that's yeah. See, Constable's thing. So Constable has a great job. He's a, like a finance guy or whatever. He's got a great yeah. job, and and you know his his loyalty is with the PLL, and mm-hmm. especially like this year coming. Who knows when we're going to get to start this season? I, I, you just can't know at this point, right? Maybe there's overlap. Who knows? So I, I don't. But I mean, Constable his, his game should translate. Yeah. Um, the fact so that he I, I don't know. Both way, like he's a two-way guy makes him that much more mm-hmm. valuable, I think. Exactly. Because you don't have to I, worry about you don't have to yeah. worry about teaching him the the two the pick and roll game. You can just you can just let him slowly learn learn that as he yeah. runs both ways. And we know he can play defense, and he's a freak yeah. of an athlete. I, I think I think his game very, yeah. translates very well. I think it probably translates maybe yeah. better than some of those strictly offensive yeah. guys like a Grant Amen. Yeah, I think so too. I just the big thing is, does he want to play? Yeah. And even if he wants to play, does he have the? Is it? Does it? Is it logical or does it? Is it feasible for him to really work it out? Because you do have to look at like guys coming out of you know out of some of these schools like uh, the the great schools, and they have these opportunities career wise outside of the game. Yeah. It's a factor. I mean, yeah. there are other guys that we've seen right that could play, but you know you get you, you don't make as much playing lacrosse as you yeah. do on Wall Street. Yeah, that was the one comment that uh, John Arlotta made to me because I, I, I made the Notre Dame-Arlotta connection yeah. with Georgia. I said, you got yeah. four picks. Are you going to use one of those on Costable? He's like, maybe. But yeah. oftentimes, like you just said, those Notre Dame guys end up yeah. with incredible jobs once they're done. So leaving yeah. that life for a pro lacrosse life doesn't always make sense. So it, it's yeah. very interesting. Yes, there's that connection there, but that doesn't make it a natural fit. Yeah, he told me the same thing, and yeah. and and John, you know, I you know John doesn't like to talk too much. He yeah, doesn't like he, to tell he, us things. He's a poker player more than Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, <Collins>. yeah, he's <laughs> always looking for for info rather than share. But yeah, uh, he's uh, great to have conversations with. Oh, is he ever? Um, this yeah. isn't maybe the the deepest goaltender draft, but as we Correct. get more and more teams in the National Cross League, uh, I'm constantly of the the thought process that goaltenders continue to become that much more important. Uh, Lane Rushka, obviously head and shoulders kind of above the rest, uh, making him yeah. the first goalie off the board. But how deep is the goalie pool? Uh, it's it's interesting because I think there are a bunch of guys who are who aren't bad players, mm-hmm. but it's and and you put it really well that the you know with more teams goalies become more and more important because there's always it always seems like there's a little bit of a shortage, right? Like not everybody can get a really good quality number one starter. And the other side of the coin though is. Um, you take like a, a Rylan Hartley, uh, you know, Nick Damon, and you know they're showing some really good things, right? But it takes a while. I mean, Kristen Del Bianco took a couple of years before he became, you know, before Coquitlam CDB was NLL CDB, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it takes a bit. So you know, do you draft them when 
there's no minor league system. You can't keep them around really, unless you have room to keep them on the roster. Like Calgary just made room, just kept them there. Right. Uh, which was for Del Bianco. Obviously you're going to do that. Um, for Lane Risch, I think that would be a similar situation. Somebody's going to take him, And I would think, uh, maybe practice squad to start, and then you have him as a backup for a while, and then eventually he's – I think he can be a uh, an NLL, you know, a franchise goalie. Um, but he's hes not – I think he's very good right now. I don't think he would step in and, and be able to play as a starter right away. I don't think yeah, there are many goalies who yeah, can. I, I, yeah, there are very many that do that. It's a very yeah. rare situation for a kid, whether he's a 19-year-old, still hasn't gone – not going to college, or he's a 21-year-old out of college, that's not a jump that's easy to make. Probably the hardest position to make yeah. that jump. Yeah. Now the biggest so, question. Oh yeah, go ahead. Finish. I was going to say so. If you just I didn't want to like just talk about Rushka because I no. think to me the next goal is probably Justin Getty. Yeah. Um, and then there's and I don't know if I don't think he's ready to play at, at this no. point, but I he's, think it's probably Getty or Nate Pasine. Um, yeah. I, but I, the thing with me for Nate Pasine is that yeah. he you know he kind of was behind Christian Del Bianco for most of his junior career when he got the shot, yeah. helps Coquitlam to the Minto, but kind of collapsed in the Minto. And that was yeah. maybe a whole Coquitlam team thing that kind of collapsed. So maybe it's probably sure. not all on him. Um, but I, I think he's right there. He was in the draft last year, but he, he never got picked. Yeah. So he's back in the draft pool. Uh, but I think yeah. Getty probably has more upside than Nate Cassine does. Yeah. Um, I, I like Brody that, Harris too. Yeah. Yeah. Brody Harris came over to Victoria. Um, yeah. It was a late pickup at the draft deadline. Didn't see a lot of action, but when he went in, mm-hmm. he was solid. Um, yeah. But he just – I taught Marty O'Neill so often. And, yeah. you know, the the change from Canadian goaltending pads and rules and nets to the NLL size and yeah. speed of the game and the nets is we're not helping these young goaltenders get ready yeah. for the NLL. So I think that's a huge part of why the transition is so hard. So it, it's it very is. hard to predict where these guys – are going to land, but even more harder to predict how they're going to turn out as, you know, a third goalie, because that's going to allow them to see as many shots and as much as they can while they can. Yeah. Cause you've got guys like that have some talent. I mean, there's a whole list, Dustin Hill, uh, Jackson Brown, Dylan Sprints, Briley Miller. You know, there are some other goalies who are, who are good goalies. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just don't, I don't feel like any of them are ready. No. Um, because like we said, it's just so hard to be ready. It's a big step. So I don't know. I, to me, you don't really necessarily draft those guys at this point. You can just sign them yeah. as free agents later because you can, you know, there are players that if you don't draft them, somebody else probably will. Whereas, and, and, you know, you can develop them a bit more whereas with goalies. You know, I it's, think there's, it's there's, a process. With, with them not being drafted, you know, there's still a lot of player goaltenders. They're going to be in that sort of free agent, yeah. free, free agent player pool that, Teams are just going to go and get a third off, third string goaltender yeah. off of. So I don't think if a goalie's not drafted yeah. here, um, that their careers are necessarily no. over. They just need to continually work on their path to the NL, which all these kids are doing, and it's just been absolutely amazing. Um, two more. Questions. It's kind of different for goalies, right? And oh, that's you bring up an interesting point because because for other players, like a lot of guys, if you don't get drafted, you you do get drafted, you get cut. It's hard. To get back in, you see guys like, I mean, Tyson Rowe is a guy who is gradually working his way back in, but it's taken a bit. And, and it's because, you know, you get drafted, you get cut, and then the next year there's a new crop of guys who were drafted that the teams have to bring in, and they're the new shiny objects. And not that people aren't paying attention to the other players, but it's easy to lose focus on someone who's kind of suddenly off the, the radar a little bit. But for goalies, that's where people are looking. I mean, look at Craig Wendy. A guy who's been around for a while and, and earning his stripes, and now he's got his shot. And you know, he was a starter last year for a lot of the season. So, oh, look at um, even older. Yeah. The guy, the guy hasn't played yeah. a single minute, and New York's signing him to an offer sheet and hoping he's going to be their guy. No one's really ever yeah. going to play at the highest level, and and yeah, they still have some pieces there in between the pipes that they can rely on if need to. But they feel this, they feel Steve Norman is the guy, and. Yeah. He's never even played a minute in this league. So yeah. he might be. How, He's how, good. Yeah, he, he, damn right he is. Yeah. Um, two more yeah. questions for you. Yes. Uh, this has been a, a wild and crazy summer, obviously, with no lacrosse. And yes. general managers are having to rely on Zoom chats and videos they find online and word of mouth from their scouts and other coaches. How have you found that as a draft analyst being able to sort of scout these guys and rank these guys? 
it's so hard. And I'll tell you, I've probably talked to GMs and coaches more this year than ever before, just because we're all in the same boat where you can't see guys play. And you know, there's always a bunch of kids every year where you're like, this is going to be a big summer for him. This is Mm -hmm. his year playing senior. This is his last year in junior. This is his year here, you know, where this is the chance to prove themselves. Um, and so many guys in that, in that case this year, um, you know, we mentioned Brad McCauley, who another summer, summer senior would be great for him, mm-hmm. you know, having gone to Langley and having to take on a big role there. Um, he could have used it. Um, you know, Curtis Conley, I think a guy, you know, would have uh, been a good, had a good chance. I think he's done enough to, to move himself up pretty high, but there are plenty of guys, um, you know, that you'd love to see that other year. Now, Robert Hudson's the other way. He got to play last year and we saw a lot of it. Right, yeah. but Marshall Palace for sure. Tanner Cook, a season, yeah. season of a season of senior would have been great. Um, Kelson Borisenko, to me, is a yeah. guy fascinating because he's so talented. I, I saw him in two um, Founders Cups, and he is a crazy athletic. He's he's a very good, mostly a forward, a righty forward out of Manitoba, played for the Blizzard, but he's a he's a long pole defender at Manhattan in college. And he is coming out this year. He can play at either end. He did play at both ends for the Blizzard and did some great things. And he was really looking forward to a summer in either BC or Ontario to play senior and, and make himself visible because nobody's seen him for a bit and he doesn't get it. So where do I, he's one that I find like, how do I rank him based on what I saw a few years ago, his athleticism and, and talking to him and understanding, see how he understands the game. I think he's very good. I think he's a good prospect, but do you take him ahead of somebody or rank him ahead of someone who has played more recently? You've seen play against men and play. It's it's the hardest draft ever <laughs> to, to rank. You know that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so this brings our last one. Well, who's your biggest sleeper in the draft right now? Uh, it may be Kelsey Morsenko. Actually, having mentioned him, I think uh, I have no idea where he's going to go, um, and I think he's he's a guy that people aren't going to have seen a lot in person and might just not know that much about. And, and you can be hesitant having, you know, this, this strange year making that pick, but I think somebody's going to get a pretty good, pretty good uh, prospect there. I think the other guy who's a bit of a sleeper because he came in late and didn't, uh, you know, didn't have the traditional entry into the draft is Patrick Dodds, who I think is, uh, he's good. And I don't, he is damn good. Right, and he's got so many—the size, the skill, the willingness to grind, the you know, the lacrosse IQ, the the toughness. I think there's a lot to him. How high does he go when he's only played one full season of junior A in BC? Um, I I don't know. I mean, honestly, you could make a case for him at 12 to Saskatchewan because, uh, yep. right? I, I'm like I'm toying with with that as I work on my mock draft. I also see him in the early 20s. You know, depending on on what happens there like that. You know, so he, he's a sleeper that, that might not sleep for long. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Does the sleeper count if he's taken in the first round? I think he's still not. I don't, maybe if he wasn't, yeah. if he didn't know if he was going to, I don't, yeah. we have to look up the definition of sleeper, I guess. Uh, Stamper, this has been awesome, man. Uh, we are going to do this September 17th for real. Uh, BR Live, Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff on YouTube. Uh, look forward to it, man. Stay safe. Don't forget your keys. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Appreciate this. Always great chatting. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. That's Steven Stamp of Inside Lacrosse, the NLL Draft coverage team, and the guy who knows a lot about a lot of people. And he's still got a long way to go to learn even more names. And further down his mock depth chart. And as he said a few times, he, he hasn't quite finished his, and I haven't quite finished mine. And... With more and more names coming out, I bl- actually today, one week ago, it's the last day people had to get their names in to be eligible for the draft. So we now pretty much know everybody who is in the draft, and we can start to finalize and work on our mocks. Because I've said this many times, I just said it to Steven, Teat 1 is a lock. Ryan Smith to Rochester seems like the safest decision then you get to Vancouver and you have LeClaire Bowering Henrik probably Bowering and then LeClaire Henrik Cook to San Diego and it starts to get confusing but as we work down this list teams are going to have to do have done their homework 
have a first, second, and third option ready. And as we all kind of hope and cross our fingers, there is some sort of wild and wacky trade in that first round. There are rumors, like we talked about with Stamper, of a team wanting to get up to that number two spot. Obviously, we know Georgia has four first-round picks. They're most likely not using all of them. Do they leverage some of those picks to move up, or do they maybe leverage those picks to move up in a different draft year? John Arlotta loves his picks. He won't let them go for cheap. So if you're a team wanting to get one of his four first-rounders, you're probably going to have to give up a future first-rounder. So... Seven days. You have seven days to finish your mock drafts, ladies and gentlemen. That is your homework for the next week. Have your mock drafts edited, compiled, and done for next Thursday. Now, the other big news story, and the one that we've been following for quite some time, is the saga of the Iroquois lacrosse and the World Games. We talked last week about the incredible show of humility, sportsmanship, class by the Team Ireland group to take themselves out of the World Games in Birmingham and give their spot to the Iroquois Nationals. That was one hurdle. There were a few more hurdles. And earlier this week, it seems like all of those hurdles have been cleared. As the World Games Committee extended an invitation to the Iroquois Nationals, asking them to be a part of the World Games. And they have accepted. And Terry Foy from Inside Lacrosse has been following this story closely. It's gracious enough to give us some time to talk about the ins and outs of this decision, why this decision was eventually made, why it happened so quickly, and what it could mean for lacrosse down the road in 2028. CEO of Inside Lacrosse, Terry Foy, right here on the Off the Crossbar podcast. The biggest story around the world of lacrosse in the last little bit uh, beyond COVID has been uh, the Iroquois struggle with the World Games and World Sport and everything involved around that. Well, the news came obviously last week that Ireland had given up their spot in order to allow the Iroquois uh, a spot of the top eight teams. And then that started the wheels in motion. And this happened really quickly. And the Iroquois have accepted an invitation from the World Games. They will be in Birmingham, Alabama in 2022. This is huge. How did it go so quickly? Like this seemed to happen almost overnight. So I think that the answer to that question depends on what you identify as having been the source of this problem in the first place. And my opinion and what I believe to be the case is that there was a interpretation on behalf of world lacrosse about the international world games charter, their adherence to the IOC eligibility standards and the strictness of those that ended up being a little bit too strong. And in what ended up happening is in the wake of all the negative reaction to the popular awareness that the Iroquois had not been extended an invite in the World Games, World Lacrosse and the World Games Association came together and basically the World Games said to World Lacrosse, like, no, they can come. Now you have to figure out how to make it happen. And so the how to make it happen was essentially a two-part process where the first thing they needed to do was receive letters of no objection from the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, Canadian Olympic Committee, U.S. Lacrosse, and the Canadian Lacrosse Association, saying that we do not object to the presence of the Iroquois Nationals by virtue of the fact that those players are technically also eligible to play for us. Right. The second thing that needed to happen is that the World Lacrosse had already submitted the eight teams that were supposed to be playing in the event, and that included Ireland. And the reason it included Ireland is because despite the fact that the Irish finished 12th in 2018 in Israel – they went all the way up to number 18 when you collapsed England and Scotland into the Great Britain team and then removed the non-full members from World Lacrosse, which were Puerto Rico and the Philippines. And so those, the, the, essentially the removal of those three teams elevated the Irish from 12th to 8th, and that's when you included also uh, the absence of the Iroquois, and that's why they were extended an invitation. So the t- 
two steps, right? Where we need to make sure that the Iroquois, or I'm sorry, the Irish having their invitation revoked doesn't create further incident. And then separately, mm-hmm. you need to receive these letters from these four bodies. Now, everybody at World Lacrosse understood very quickly that getting the letters from the U.S. from U.S. Lacrosse and the CLA was not going to be difficult. It was not going to be time-consuming. The question was, you know, these large governing bodies like the USOPC, this could be a legislative issue. It could go all the way up to the top and require board approval. That's the type of thing that could take four, six, eight months. Well, and this is where I give a lot of credit to the World Across staff, particularly the CEO, Jim Scher, who has experience being at running the USOC. He was able to reach out and procure those letters in the span of a couple of weeks. And ultimately, once those two steps had been taken, World Across went back to the, uh, the International World Games Association and the host committee in Birmingham and said, hey, we did these two things that were the two steps that needed to be done in order to extend the invitation to the Iroquois. Can we do so? They got affirmative last week and extended the invitation either late last week or over the weekend, and the Iroquois accepted it on Monday night. I'm still shocked that, you know, it's not as quick as, you know, that, but it happened fairly quickly, and that's something we don't usually see in the lacrosse world. But is, is this writing a wrong, or is this just the way it should have been? It's both, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. I don't really fault world lacrosse for finding themselves in this situation because the reason they found themselves in this situation is because they essentially overlaid what was the criteria for the 2017 women's selection onto what was originally scheduled for 21 now because of COVID has been postponed to 2022. And at the time, the Haudenosaunee hadn't participated on the global stage from a women's standpoint. So they had a path laid out to the prior administration of World Across that was never really followed because it wasn't relevant. And so by implementing that path and not necessarily having the foresight to realize this potentially emergent problem, that's what found ourselves in a situation where the Iroquois found out last fall that they weren't a part of the group that was included. And then there was some, you know, one of the things that's really ironic for me is this issue was raised in the March issue of Inside Across Magazine, which would have appeared in people's mailboxes in mid-February, but it wasn't until a portion of that story was screen captured and shared on Twitter by the New Iroquois National Twitter account that said, this is what's happening, that this public outrage followed. And that's ultimately what prompted the reassessment of this entire situation. So, yeah, I would say they should have been included all along because they are a full member of World Lacrosse. They are not ineligible by the International World Games standards, but the fact that they weren't, while it was a wrong, it is a wrong that, in my opinion, is understandable in terms of how we got there, and it was ultimately rectified. So despite the five or so weeks of strife, ultimately I think we come out of this, and I, I say this not being either Native American nor being involved with the Iroquois Nationals, but you come out the other side and say, all right, if we can build trust on the basis of the fact that this happened, it happened quickly, and it brought about the resolution that we hoped for, then realizing that this is a step toward hopefully being in the Olympics in 2028 and having the Iroquois president and understanding the extent to which the lacrosse community cares about this topic, now hopefully we can say as the Iroquois Nationals, we are confident in our partnership in this endeavor. And if that's what happens on both sides of the coin, the world lacrosse side of the coin and the Iroquois National side, then I would say that this five weeks of strike was worth it. Because Mm. I don't know that the world across leadership prior to this experience had a full-fledged understanding of exactly how high these stakes are, how important it is to the lacrosse community that the Iroquois nationals be represented, that they be treated well, and that their version of the game, the beauty of them playing the game, be shared with the world. And now I think that leadership has an acute understanding of it as a result of this experience. Okay. I want to touch on a few things. I want to talk about what this means for the Olympics. I want to touch on, um, what possible rule changes there might be for the World Games. But you mentioned that this, this, um, the news of this happened before the pandemic, before COVID, like you said, in March. Why wasn't this, and, and the Iroquois Nations found out last fall, why wasn't this brought up back then, do you think? Like, why, why are we only resolving this now? The answer to the question, in my opinion, is social media. And sure. I think that it was the volume and the vociferousness of the opposition that ultimately brought about action. 
And so this was, you know, there is a function of assigning blame and there's a function of assigning credit. And ultimately, like, I don't know, sometimes things just happen the way that they do. And yeah, it's not to say that there isn't credit due to the people that brought attention to the situation and prompted the action. It's also not to say that there isn't potential blame if that action ends up having a cost in the future. So I'm a little bit ambivalent when it comes to saying the folks who drove so much vitriol toward World Lacrosse were single-handedly altruistic and single-handedly productive. There is, in the future, potentially going to be a cost to those actions. And on the flip side, I don't believe that World Lacrosse should be cast aspersions upon and say that they are, you know, unduly, like, negatively driving this agenda. Like, I think ultimately they a combination of didn't necessarily understand the overall situation, both in terms of how we got to this point and the world games kind of allowance for Iroquois participation. And then separately also with respect to the um, potential options and, and, and path available to resort it all and um, sort of sort it all out. And then lastly, with respect to um, the, uh, the importance that this issue has to the lacrosse fans. So I guess my point is that, like, like there's plenty of blame and plenty, plenty of credit to go around. But yeah. in my opinion, the reason that nothing happened until now is because of the volume of social media. Was it surprising? And I know you mentioned that they were sort of 12th in the world rankings and it bumped them up because teams got, you know, merged together and omitted. But is it surprising that the Irish were the ones who made this decision and made the move? As opposed to whom? I don't know one of the bigger nations just kind of making an impact. Now, I'm not saying Canada or the U.S. are going to say we're out, but it almost seemed like they kind of were a little bit passive and we had to wait for the Irish to make this decision to, to find a hole for the Iroquois to get in. I don't think that's how it happened behind the scenes. No. I think that this was, I think that this was the eighth place team is going to vacate their spot. Yeah. Okay. And I wasn't, I wasn't putting blame on Canada. So I was just wondering if it was the surprise because, Hearing that it was the Irish that did it, it just it was it was a team that you thought, okay, that's kind of sweet that they did. It just I think a lot of people thought that there would have been more stink made from the higher up countries, the ones with more rank. But I completely understand. Twelve to eight, we want to give our spot. I completely get that. Um, no, no, no. It's not even about that. It's just that they were the lowest. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. So yeah. they were the team that got yeah that got bumped out. Like yeah, I don't okay. think that a stink needed to be made, right? It was just right. a question of, like, all right, only eight teams are invited. Who's the logical one to be excluded? Yeah, fair enough. Um, when the women played in the World Games in, in Poland, they had yeah. minor rule changes. They tweaked the game a little bit, try to make it more Olympic-friendly, viewer-friendly, faster, whatever reasons you want to get. What are they talking about, do you think, of changing? Are they talking about making any modifications to the men's game for, for Birmingham? I think that both men's and women's lacrosse will be played under the new six-on-six rule set that is being developed. The version of the game that we saw the U.S. play Canada in the fall of 2019, yes. And do you think that's good for the game to do that? I think that's a really, really complicated question, and for me it comes down to nuance. I think Mm -hmm. it starts with is a smaller version of the game good for lacrosse globally, and I think the answer is yes for, I don't know, 15 reasons. But the three that really rise above to me are, number one, when your game, the way it is going to be played at the highest level requires fewer participants, then access to that game is higher. Number two, when you have fewer players on the field, each individual player's quality impact is greater. And while I think most people would assume that that favors the U S and Canada that have the greatest players. I actually think it favors the lesser nations because the greatness is more frequently manifest in depth than it is in your top end talent. And so I think that whether it's the seventh or eighth seed or whomever, their ability to compete is higher with smaller rosters, with fewer players on the field. And then I do think that there are real merits to the proposed rule set, particularly compared to international rules as they currently are. I don't think that seven on seven or six on six is going to be as much better than the PLL rules in field lacrosse, 
as they will the international rules. The international rules have a lot of flaws in them that need to be rectified, and not seeing those flaws on display in the global stage will be a good thing. Um, refresh my memory. When Canada and USA played this way, um, were long sticks involved? It was, no, they were not. It was a wild affair. Um, if memory serves, the Canadians beat the U.S. like 21 to 15. Um, and uh, so, it, and, and again, you know, so this was October of 2019 at U.S. Lacrosse, played in the rain the day after both teams had played a traditional field rules game. Um, the men played, I'm sorry, the women played first and then the men played second. Um, and it was really interesting uh, watching from the sideline. They, they actually played two different versions, one in the first half, one in the second half. And it was whether to hold one player back or to play full field. Everybody played mm. full field. And, um, and so they played, you know, one half one way and the other, one half the other way. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was box across outside for sure. Um, no backups on shots. So, you know, it was basically if you miss and the ball goes out of bounds, the ball goes the other way. Um, so it was really up and down. Um, the, uh, I, I found the, the version of the game with a player left behind to be um, better because I found fatigue and substitutions to be both chaotic and a significant factor, particularly at the end of the first two quarters. Um, so when you played basically one attackman slash one defenseman, um, held back and then four and four at the other end of the field, or I'm sorry, five and five at the other end of the field. That was a, uh, that was a better version in my opinion. So what does this mean for the Olympics? Obviously the eyes for the lacrosse will go to Los Angeles, 2028. That was sort of the big push was to get lacrosse there for that time frame. everything with the PLL being out on the West coast, um, kind of has opened everybody's eyes to NBC in the world. Now that we have, lacrosse men's lacrosse at the world games the iroquois are in what's their next step for the olympics so the two biggest next steps with respect to lacrosse's inclusion in the olympics are things that don't really have a time frame so the first is does lacrosse does world lacrosse get recognized fully by the ioc right now as of november 2018 uh i'm sorry i guess it would have been yeah november 2018 um, lacrosse is provisionally recognized by the IOC. That is a program that has been wound down. There's this backlog of, of international sports associations that are trying to receive full IOC recognition, and we're waiting to see that process come to fruition. And then the second is, does the LA host committee get granted the same right power privilege that Tokyo in 2020, now 2021, and Paris in 2024 have gotten to elevate a certain number of sports from that kind of lesser non-competitive pool into the competitive round, that has not been granted to L yet. It's unclear whether or not it'll be awarded or clarified whether or not it will be awarded after the Tokyo Games. Relatively unlikely they would wait until after the Paris Games in 24, but that needs to happen. Both of those things need to happen in order for lacrosse to actually have a real pathway toward inclusion in the Olympics. And then if, if both those things do happen, then lacrosse needs to win out over its competitor sports, mm. of which you might find baseball or surfing or whatever, um, in order to curry favor from the L.A. committee in order to be selected. All the while, the Iroquois Nationals need to develop a National Olympic Committee and probably, although I don't know that this is a certainty, but probably have it recognized by the IOC so that if World Lacrosse or the L.A. Host Committee are in a position to select the participants or the criteria by which the, you know, eligible participants are created have to include the Iroquois so that they could then be able to qualify based on um, whatever the path toward LA and 26 would, or 28 would be. So those are, you know, four distinct steps that need to be taken and there really aren't significant timeframes on any of them. This is a happy ending for the lacrosse world. Did you think that, the immediate reaction was an overreact or was it warranted by the social media lacrosse family? The overall reaction was warranted and necessary. There were individuals who either took their point too far or didn't understand how this was going to resolve itself. If it was going to resolve itself, it didn't require anger to get to this point. 
but it did require loudness and broad consensus. And I do believe that if it hadn't been for that, those two factors manifesting themselves, then it wouldn't, I don't think lacrosse would be, I don't think the Iroquois would have gone to the world games and I don't think lacrosse's shot, shot at the Olympics would be any better than it was on July 20th when this story got posted in the wake of this. I think that the Iroquois national presence of the world games and what they will show will ultimately prove to be an asset for lacrosse's hope for Olympic inclusion in 2028. I think that there's so many, there's a, it's a confluence of so many factors, including the international politics and the approach of the IOC to whether it's the refugee team or some of the other elements of making choices that they have never made in their past that are in favor of this type of movement. Separately, some of the values that they have touted, whether it be sustainability or inclusion, would fall in line with the idea of including the Iroquois Nationals in an Olympic event going forward. And not only would it fall in line with, it would be something that would be celebrated. That, that unique thing is something that would be an asset for lacrosse's bid. And I think that the opportunity to show that at Birmingham, as opposed to just tell people about it, is going to go a long way toward accomplishing both tasks if they are to be accomplished. Number one, get lacrosse to the Olympics, and number two, make sure that the Iroquois are there if indeed lacrosse gets into the Olympics. Have you gotten yourself a Iroquois Ireland mashup shirt yet? <laughs> well, as a, uh, a an Irishman who has any number of pieces of Iroquois national apparel, um, I have not, but I think I will. I think you might have just sold me on it. Perfect. I'll get my boy Chuck on it for you. Um, Terry, there I appreciate go. it, man. This is uh, great insight and a story that kind of had everybody in the lacrosse world uh, waiting with bated breath and, and anxious noise. So uh, I appreciate the update. Hope you're safe. Stay well, and we'll talk to you, my man. Thanks, Teddy. Appreciate it. That's Terry Foy, CEO of Inside Lacrosse, and you can head over to the Inside Lacrosse website for more information on everything that's going on with the Iroquois Nationals, Team Ireland, and the World Games. This is a monumental moment for our sport, and if it can lead us to the Olympics and further world stages down the road, I am all for it. But as you heard him say, the thought process for the World Games is to have lacrosse play six-on-six with no long poles. It will be very interesting to see how lacrosse purists, how lacrosse players and lacrosse fans take it, and how fans outside of the lacrosse world accept this version of lacrosse. Because now... You have another form of lacrosse being played around the world to make the game even more confusing for the average fan. Because now you can go from Canadian summer, NLL, international field, NCAA field, MLL, PLL field, and world games. There are so many different styles of lacrosse being played. I don't know if this is good or bad. I, I don't know. And I don't know how the six-on-six six is going to flush itself out. It will be very interesting to see because it's going to take a lot of adjusting. Because if you're an American who plays long pole, and all of a sudden, your position doesn't exist anymore when it comes to World Games lacrosse and maybe eventually Olympic lacrosse. That has to be extremely disheartening as you take out a quarter of your talent. Of course, D guys can make the adjustment and use short sticks, but... That's what short stick midis are for. And it will be very intriguing to watch the process of this unfold. Because, like I said, you just kind of cut out a quarter of your lacrosse pool talent by not having their position in the game anymore. 
I wonder how American long poles feel about this and, and other long poles around the world feel about this. If that is the way we play and what we get to. Again, keep an eye on Inside the Cross for more information as it becomes available, but it looks like all the hurdles have been cleared and we are back to normal. I really appreciated what Terry said there, though, that if it wasn't for this happening, if it wasn't for the screen grab, and if it wasn't for Cody Jamison retweeting it, and everybody kind of having their eyes opened to what was going on and the stink that was made, we're probably not here. So for everybody that used their voice, used their words, and went about this the right way, thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. And I'm so happy that this is something we can move on from. Then we can focus on playing the game of lacrosse at the highest stage in front of millions of eyes for the creator. September 17th is seven days away. YouTube, Facebook, BR Live, Twitter. We'll have you covered 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Don't forget, follow the folks over at the Lacrosse Flash on socials as we continue to break down all the top prospects. And they, too, will have pick-by-pick draft coverage as the night goes on. Thanks to Terry Foy. Thanks to Stephen Stamp. And as always, thanks to you, our loyal listener, for standing by and sticking tune on another Thursday. You can email me, teddy.jenner at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter, at Off the Crossbar, or on the Instagram, OTCB Podcast. Until we speak again, stay safe and be excellent to each other. I am an outlaw.